you'll remain standing for the reading of the word, please take your Bibles and we'll turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. Okay, I'm going to try and make sure I can do this clicker properly. But Let's read together. 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Just close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm just going to commit this word to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. God, it divides to the hearts and intents of man, to the joints and the marrow. And God, I pray that the word that is spoken today would not be my word, but your word. I pray, God, that you would speak in such a way that it would personally minister to each person. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, not by anything that I say. Father God, I pray that you would use me as a vessel, God, in your hands for your glory, oh God. Give me clarity. Give me focus to deliver your word clearly, God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to speak on worry today. Um, It's one of those things that's common to all of us. No matter where you come from, no matter what your people group, the language you speak, your socioeconomic status, where you live, we're all prone to worry. I think we can all admit that in, in theory, we understand that we shouldn't worry from the word of God and from this passage, but how many of us know that in practice, it's much, much harder, much harder. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make an admission. I'm, I'm, I'm worried right now about this message. So I need you all to pray for me um, that God would speak through me. Um, just like Moses asked God, you know, I don't know what to say. I, when pastor asked me, I, was, I literally didn't know what to say. I, was, I, I knew I had to say yes because I can't say no. And, and then I was like, God, what do you want me to say? And I was reminded of what God told Moses. He said, who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Is it not I, the Lord, now go? I will be with you, and I will teach you what to say. A good friend who's been in prayer for me for the last 24 hours or so said, sometimes it's what God wants to speak to you that he wants to speak to others. So I'm going to literally embrace that message and speak to you on worry today. Why do we worry? I want to put the question to you. Anyone who wants to just kind of put themselves out there, why do we worry? Don't give me the Sunday school answer. Why as humans do we worry? Why are you worried? Anyone have an answer? <laughs> Unbelief? That's a Sunday school answer. What, what, about, what, about, 
What about why are you naturally worried? Don't think about what the Bible says. Why do you feel worried? Fear. Fear. Why are you afraid? Lack of control. Lack of knowledge. What would others think? Lack of trust. The Holy Spirit is inspiring some of you because I'm going to touch on a bunch of those things. Um, and it's all true. All true. I would say we worry because we care. Right? That's, that's what humans would say. We care so much so we worry. We worry because we want to make sure that there's a good outcome. But in any given situation, we don't usually control all the variables. And so when we don't have that control, the default, the byproduct of that is worry. Right? Because we don't have control and we want to be in control because we want to control the narrative. We want to control the variables. Worry at its core, someone said this and it was very good, it's rooted in the unbelief that our father either doesn't know what we need or that he won't provide. Now that seems harsh, right? Who would believe that God doesn't know what we need? We all know God knows what we need. We know that God cares for us, right? We've all heard that saying, let go and let God, right? We've all heard the verse that says, Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you, right? That's in Peter, right? Peter says that. But our lives often betray, and in my life I can say this, it betrays the stark truth that we want to be in control of our lives. It's not enough that God says that he's in control. When we don't think things are in control, we default to worry. Because if we believed that, we wouldn't worry, right? But it, it just kind of shows that as human beings, we default to this emotion of worry, The reality is often that we merely believe that God can do something because we've read it in the Bible, but we don't believe that he will do something in my situation. Does that, does that make sense to you guys? We believe God can split the Red Sea because he did it. We have faith enough for that. But do we believe that God will do something like that for me in my situation where I'm worried? And the answer, honestly, sometimes, a lot of the time, is no because we worry. We don't trust God. It's almost as if we don't want to embarrass God by putting him or taking him at his word, right? God says all these things about you. He says all these promises about you. But then you don't want to embarrass, so you hedge because if you're wrong, then somehow you're embarrassing God, right? That's our feeling as humans. When you think about that, when, you, when, when that's said out loud, doesn't that seem so arrogant to believe that we could somehow embarrass God. God is big enough for you to take him at his word. When he asks you to believe that he will provide, he will provide. Now, that doesn't mean that the provision may look like what we want, because oftentimes we're praying for what we want and not what we need. But the Bible tells us that God will provide what we need. In fact, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says that the Father knows what we need before we ask. So when we're willing to put our weight on God's promises and take him at his word that he will do what he says, we take our eyes off the circumstances that are out of our control that cause us to worry, and we lift up our eyes to the hills where our help comes from, to the God who transcends our circumstance and who can give us the peace that passes understanding, even when we're worried. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. Does anyone know that verse? I know some of you do. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So how 
then do we learn to trust God as Father. Because it says if you trust that God knows what you need, you don't need to worry. So how do we learn to trust God's nature as Father? By learning to know the Father, right? That makes sense. It's a blatant contradiction, however, to say that you can trust someone that you don't know. Would you trust someone off the street with your kids to babysit? Would you trust um, someone you didn't know to manage your finances that you hadn't vetted first? No, you wouldn't, right? But then we are expected to trust a God that we don't ever take the time to really know. And this is one of those things that's an indictment of our relationships with God. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. Trust in God by its very nature grows out of the discipline of walking with God day by day and tasting and seeing that God is good experientially, not just merely theoretically. We're all really good, myself included, at reading the Bible and knowing that God is good. But how many of us have taken God at his word, trusted in his promise, and then experienced that he is good and that he's faithful and that he can provide? instead of just defaulting to what we do in our human strength, which is what we all do. We're all guilty. I'm included. Learning to know the Father and learning to trust in his nature are key to addressing this issue of worry. It's, it's not surprising then that, you know, worry often rears its ugly head when we're not aligned with God's purpose for our life, when we're far away from God. That's when we default to worry most of the time. So then how do we learn to know the Father? How would we learn to know the Father as human beings in this world? How do we learn to know the Father? What does the Bible tell us? How, how do we know the Father? Can anyone see the Father? So how do we know the Father? What does the Bible tell us? Through the Son. That's the only way we can know the Father, through the Son. It's explicitly stated in Scripture. The biblical pattern shows that God the Father speaks to us through His Son by His Holy Spirit. So we need to know Jesus to know the Father. So Jesus actually himself says this explicitly. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 14. If you guys could just, sorry, go through the, the slides for me because I'm going to get mixed up if I, if I think about it. John chapter 14, verse 1 to 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Everybody knows this passage. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him Excuse me, and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, or seen me rather, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So this passage makes very clear that building our relationship with Jesus Christ is the one way to get to the Father's heart, to truly know God the Father. We're fortunate then that even though we don't know too much about the Father except what the Bible says, that the Scripture is full of truth about Jesus. It tells us so much about him. So by getting into the Word of God, we learn more about Jesus who makes the Father known. 
the more we realize how wonderful this person, Jesus Christ, is, the more we realize we don't have to worry because he's with us. He's inside of us. Don't worry. And this is what I want to caption the message as. There's going to be a title. There's another in the fire. Don't worry. Let's look at John 1. So I'm going to unpack now Jesus Christ and the scriptures a little bit just so we can understand the true nature of, of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Let's look at John chapter 1, which is a very familiar passage. Some of you probably even know it by heart. Um, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So what is this telling us, this, this passage? It's in fact telling us that Jesus is the catalyst of creation. He is the one by whom everything was created. So when God said the first verse of the Bible, what does Genesis 1 verse 1 say? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke the word. And it also says in that passage that Jesus was the light of the world, the light of all mankind. He's the active catalyst in creation. This is the concept of the logos, the word of God. Jesus, the word became flesh. Paul in Colossians 1 further affirms this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. And you don't have to turn with it. I'm going to go through a whole bunch of verses today, and you can just follow along as I read it and follow on the screen. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's, that's really, it sounds almost kooky. It sounds too, like crazy. God is, God is holding everything together through the person of Jesus Christ, who's the word, the active catalyst in creation. The writer of Hebrews, who most Bible scholars agree is probably Paul, he also says this in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 2 and 3. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. See how this all ties back into John 1? Jesus is essential. He's, he's the foundation. He is the core of everything that we, we see, the reality. He holds it together. All things were made for him and by him. Now let's go back and look at John chapter 1. I wanna, this is very key to, to what I'm going to go through. Go back to John chapter 1 and look at verse 18. It says, no one has ever, ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So it's noteworthy to read. Read that carefully. No one has ever seen God but the Son who makes him known to man. I want you to remember that. Keep that in your back pocket. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 also says there is one God, one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. I want you to ponder on these verses with me, if you will. Meditate with me this morning. 
If we're to take John at face value, what he's saying is that no one has ever seen God except the Son. And the Son is the one who reveals him to us. That would have interesting implications. Does anyone remember where God has appeared to people in the Old Testament? He has, right? But John is telling us that God has, no one has ever seen the Father. But we know Jesus is also God. We know the Holy Spirit is also, they're part of the Trinity. So if they had not seen the Father, who is it that these people in the Old Testament were seeing? So we know Jesus really well from the New Testament, but I want to unveil for you a whole other half of the Bible that Jesus says, these scriptures testify about me. He says, they testify about me. He says to the Jews and the Pharisees, he said, if you believed in the Father, if your true Father, you loved him, you would accept me because these scriptures that you look for, eternal life for, they testify about me. Not that they prophesy about me. Not only that, they do, but they also witness. What does testify mean? They witness about me. So we're going to go through the Old Testament together and see a little bit more, a little layer, a different layer of who this Jesus is because it informs our understanding of our link to the Father through Jesus Christ. We see several instances in the Old Testament of men and women who interact with God and live. The common idea was if you saw Yahweh, you would die. But there are several instances where people saw a presence that they they thought to be God, and yet they lived. In some instances, we read the Lord in bodily form appears. In others, we see someone called the angel of the Lord who interacts with men and women. And the angel of the Lord, oftentimes we get confused by this because we think angel is like Gabriel or Michael, but it literally just means messenger. It it can be an angelic being who comes from the court of God, like Gabriel, but it also just means anyone who is sent who represents Yahweh. And that's what the the angel of the Lord literally means. It's it's in, in the scripture several times. It literally means messenger of Yahweh. We're gonna look at that. This angel or messenger is distinct from other angels or messengers, like Michael and Gabriel. Unlike other messengers, like Gabriel, When people tried to worship angels because they were strange, they'd always say, hey, get up. Give glory to God. Don't give glory to me. This angel of the Lord on several occasions accepts the worship of man. He accepts it. It's a presence that's distinct from God the Father and yet God. Just like Jesus, the Son is distinct from God the Father and yet still God. And another interesting thing about this, we stop seeing references in the Bible about the angel of the Lord once Jesus is made flesh. We don't ever see that again once Jesus comes in flesh. The word was with God in the beginning, but he became flesh and dwelt among us. So before that, we see something called the angel of the Lord. Let's look at some of these because it'll inform about his character. It'll inform about how he dealt with people before the cross. Many Bible scholars actually call these Christophanies or theophanies, appearances of God or Christ in the Old Testament. So when we consider John 1 verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God but the Son. That makes sense that Christ could manifest maybe in a pre-incarnate form, maybe not in the actual form he took, but a presence that represented the second person of the Trinity. Let's consider the story of Moses. I I saw someone mouth Moses in the burning bush in chapter 3 of Exodus. 3, 1 to 6. Now Moses Read this very carefully. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Mount Sinai, or Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. The angel of the Lord. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he went over to look, 
he called out from within the bush. It says, God called to him from within the bush. Within the bush. But who's in the bush? The angel of the Lord. But it says, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then this presence in the bush says, don't come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. But we see that there's an angel of the Lord in the flames, but it's also that he's afraid to look at God. So somehow these presences are linked. The Lord that we know conventionally as God and this angel of the Lord are one and the same. Let's go back and look again. So who is it that appeared to Moses in flames of fire? The angel of the Lord. Who speaks from the bush? God. Moses also hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. But it also says that he's, this is an angel. So who's the angel? I believe, and I think it's very clear even from John, that the presence in this bush is the second person of the Trinity, the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Still, Jesus said, I am that I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Not only did he appear in the burning bush to Moses, but interestingly enough, it says that this angel of the Lord is what was in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by day and night. It says that he led the people of Israel through the wilderness. In Exodus 14, verse 19, it says this, The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. But then if you look at Exodus 13, verse 21 to 22, it says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light. He did not, and I'm going to skip forward a little bit. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Again, the angel of the Lord there, you see, and the Lord are connected as one person in the same passage. There's something even more significant about this. Not only was he in the pillar of cloud and fire, it says that this cloud, where did it rest eventually? After Mount Sinai, they built something called the tabernacle. And it says the cloud actually settled on the tabernacle. And it said that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much that Moses couldn't even go in. But it's, it's the same presence that's in this pillar of fire who's the same presence who's in this burning bush, who's speaking and saying, I am the God of your, fa the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we read 34 to 38, I'm just going to read it quickly. Exodus 40. Then the cloud, this is the pillar of cloud, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So see this, remember when Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, we can't go. His presence was literally with them Every second of the way, those 40 years in the, the wilderness, this presence, this angel of the Lord led them, led his people out of Egypt. Moses led the people out of Egypt, but it's also the presence of the Lord himself that led them. That makes it much more special when we realize the trials and tribulations over 40 years, God was with them every second of the way. Every single person over 20 that died in those 40 years, God was there. His presence was there. When they felt alone, God's presence was there. When they were thirsty, when they were hungry, God was still there. It's just like that in our lives. No matter what we go through, we may not feel that God is there, but he's there. He's present and he's powerful and able to help. Not only can he help, 
He will help. And that's what we are called as believers on this side of the cross to believe and trust in. It's pretty remarkable, right? Thinking about this idea of God in the bush, in the cloud, and in the tabernacle. See, Moses even goes in eventually into this tabernacle, and it says he tabernacles with God. And when he leaves the presence, it says his face shines. They even had to put a veil over him because the glory was so heavy on him. Every time he left, they'd have to cover his face. This really puts John chapter 5 in context. I want you to think about this. John 5, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. In 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have eternal life. Remember, the, the scriptures, all the scriptures that the Pharisees had at the time was the Tanakh, the Old Testament. There, there is no New Testament, and they wouldn't have believed in it if it was there anyway. They had the Old Testament. So all they had, Jesus is saying, these scriptures testify me about me. And if you knew them, you'd come to me for eternal life. Now, interestingly enough, in 45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. He's saying Moses wrote about me. Not God the Father, Jesus, me. He wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, let's look at another Old Testament encounter with God. It's in Isaiah. Everyone remember Isaiah's encounter with the Lord in chapter 6? I'm going to read it. It's 6, verse 1 to 3. It says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they were calling to one another, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah laments, that famous lament. He says, I am ruined. Woe, is, woe unto me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But if, what if I told you that John himself tells us explicitly that this person is Jesus Christ? This person that Isaiah says is Jesus Christ. If you go to John chapter 12, verse 41, 37 to 41 gives the context. It says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. And it was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then the verses are there. But in 41, this is key. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. John is saying explicitly, Isaiah, this Lord that's seated high and mighty, John is explicitly writing. We don't have to infer this. He's writing it saying, Isaiah, that glory, that Lord, the one who has seraphim, flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is Jesus himself. It's his glory. Again, this goes back to John 1 verse 18. No one has seen God the Father except the Son who makes him known to man. So let's think about this again. Other instances of, of the Lord. Who walks with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden then? Because it's a visible presence. He walks with them in the cool of the evening. He even makes a sound. They hear the sound of him coming. They hide from his presence. So it's not just like, some ethereal thing. They're, they're hiding from a person. Who is walking? And when you think back to Romans, you think about the first Adam and the second Adam. All this comes together in a crazy way. It's incredible to think about. Think about Adam and Eve in that moment. Think about the fact that, think of as if, and think it is, the second person of the Trinity walking in the garden. What are Adam and Eve? They're scared. They've just sinned. They're hiding from the presence of God. Sure, there's curses, there's condemnation, but what else does he do? They were afraid because they were naked. What does he do? He clothes them. He gives them a promise. He tells the enemy, the seed of this woman will crush your head. And who is the seed of that woman? Jesus himself. 
It's a beautiful imagery to think about. He makes promises of redemption and he clothes their nakedness, covering their shame, just like he does for us. The angel of the Lord also appeared to someone called Hagar. Hagar is Ishmael's mother. When Hagar was pregnant, Sarai started mistreating her because she despised her. She ran away. And it says the angel of the Lord found her. And he said, go back. I will make your people a great nation. I will multiply your offspring. And what does, it's interesting what Hagar says there. In, it's in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. She says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. Also, the Lord speaks to Abraham several times, right? Everyone remember those three people that come to, to Abraham in bodily form, not like a spirit, not a cloud. Three people come. Two are angels who go to Sodom and Gomorrah. But the third one is clearly, it says it's the Lord. And he speaks with, with Abraham in such endearing terms. He said, shall I hide from my friend Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Even parlays with Abraham when Abraham is worried about his nephew Lot. He said, if there are 50 righteous, would you save? He said, yes. If there are 40, 35, 30, 20, even 10, he said, for 10 righteous, I will spare the city. The heart of the son. And in light of this previous context that I just explained, John 8, verse 56 to 58 says something incredible, and it puts it in perspective, sharp focus. It's a truly incredible exchange between the Jews and Jesus. 56, it says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They said, you're not yet 50 years old, and you said that you've seen Abraham. I guess there was an age prerequisite to see Abraham, apparently. And Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And they understood from I am, because we can see from their reaction that they understood he was claiming to be God. In Genesis 28, it says Jacob saw the Lord ascending on, Lord on the top of a ladder and angels ascending and descending. Does anyone remember when Jesus met Nathanael, he said, I saw you under the fig tree. And he said, oh, Rabbi, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. And Jesus says, you believe because you see that or because I told you that. He says, I tell you the truth. You will see greater things than these. And he says, I tell you the truth, you will see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. So who is it that Jacob is seeing in this vision? There's another time that Jacob encounters God. There's a man who wrestles with him, right? Remember? So he's running from Esau after he steals his birthright. He meets with God. He names the place Bethel because this is the house of God. He wasn't even looking for God. God found him. He gets prosperous. He marries two people, has a whole bunch of kids, acquires livestock. He comes back. He's still terrified of Esau. And God meets with him in the morning. He's, he's actually running away because he's stressed out trying to figure out what to do before he meets Esau. And a man meets him there, and they wrestle until daybreak. And this man says, you've wrestled with God and men and have overcome. And he blessed him and gave him the name Israel. And before he leaves, Jacob says, please, Lord, what's your name? It says in Genesis chapter 32, verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. In Judges chapter 13, we actually see an interesting parallel to this as well. There it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents, Manoah, and his wife. It actually says he appeared to the wife first, and then God, or they asked God, they said, um, God, can you send the same person because I want to talk to him too. And God relents, but he appears to the wife again. And so Manoah runs out and meets this angel of the Lord. 
And what this angel of the Lord is basically saying is that a child is going to be born who will begin to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines. The Lord will be mighty upon him and that there are certain vows that he has to take. He's a Nazarite consecrated to the Lord from birth. And then it's interesting. Manoah actually asked a question in verse 17. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord. What is your name? It's the same question. So that we may honor you when the word comes true. And he replies with the same answer. Why do you ask my name? It says, it is beyond understanding. Or the Hebrew word, it's actually translated very well here. The Hebrew word is literally pele, means wonderful. In my translation, it said beyond understanding. But the real meaning of the word is wonderful, pele. And I'd like to connect this to something. Do you know another place in scripture where his name is called wonderful? Isaiah, right? We all know this passage. I'm going to read it for you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Pretty incredible, right? Another commonly viewed Christophany, and this is probably where people thought I was going when I said there is another in the fire, is the one with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Don't worry, I'm going to touch on that too. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, everyone knows the story. From, from grade school, we know the story. They refused to bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar put up. So this is Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. They're about to be put in a literal blazing furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Did you catch that? Said so they knew that God could provide, but they also said our God will provide. Even if I burn, we won't do it, but I know that my God will provide. How many of us have that kind of faith? I'm going to put my hands down because I feel like, honestly, a lot of the time I don't. I think most of us can agree. How many of you can look into a literal blazing furnace and say, my God will deliver me when soldiers are about to, they bound you up. They're ready to throw you in. My God can and my God will. And even if he doesn't, we won't do it. Because we know he's worth it. He's worth more than whatever life you give me back. And I'm not going to, I don't have that much time, so... Everyone knows the story, right? They get thrown into the furnace. Even the people that come to put them near the door, that fire is so hot, they die. But then Nebuchadnezzar says, wait, wait, wait. I see another one in the fire. There's another in the fire standing next to them. And what does that engender, the response? Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace in 26 and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. How did he know that? What he saw convinced him that there was a most high God. There was another in the fire standing next to them. And I want to bring this home a little bit. When we're standing in the fire of our lives, we talk about fire. 
Maybe not a literal furnace, but a a figurative furnace. There's another one in the fire standing next to us. It says, "Our our, our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, our great intercessor, the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same Lord who called from the fire in the burning bush to Moses, the same Lord who led Israel in the pillar of fire, the same Lord who led Israel by resting on the tabernacle in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and talking with man. He was the same Lord who ascended in the flame of Manoah's offering and they realized that it was God they were speaking to by seeing him ascend in the fire. That same God was in the fire with them. He was in the fire standing next to them. Not just the fire of glory, but the fire of tribulation, the fire of challenges. So when we go through fire, remember he's promised to never leave you or forsake you even when you're in the furnace. So take heart and don't let your heart be troubled. I can't help but remember this verse from Isaiah chapter 43. Everyone knows this. This is one of those verses you get at watch night service on your piece of paper. Isaiah 43 verse 1 and 2. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And there are other instances in the Bible. There's so many. Think about Daniel. He, he met the son of man who was coming on the cloud of glory and, and approaching the ancient of days. And with him, there was glory and honor and power. And of his dominion, there shall be no end. Ezekiel, the same thing. It says that he appeared to Zechariah. It says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. Be strong, mighty warrior. Who is this man? I don't have time. I wish I had time. But if you explore these things, you will understand the nature of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. I strongly believe this, and I believe the Scripture backs this up. How do we overcome worry? By knowing the Father through the Son. So the more we get into the Word, the Logos Word of God, Jesus, who's revealed in the Scripture, the more we realize we don't have to worry because we understand how wonderful He is. The one who is in us. I don't even have time. It's 11.59. But there's another Christophany, and I've spoken about this in SNL. The commander of the Lord's army who appears to Joshua, right? It says that, and some of you have heard this, but for the benefit of the others, there's a man who comes. He says, as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. But he's also said something else to Joshua. Remember, who walked with Moses, who stayed by the tent of the meeting when the cloud was there even after Moses left. He was acquainted with the presence of God. He said, take the sandals from off of your feet, The place where you're standing is holy. And it says that Joshua fell face down, and it says that this man didn't say get up like Gabriel. He accepted his worship. He doubled down. He said, not only are you worshiping, you should probably take off your sandals, just like my servant Moses did, the angel of the Lord who spoke to him out of the burning bush. Now, who is this commander of the army of the Lord? If you look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 to 6, it says that there's a commander of the Lord's army. His name is Faithful and True. His robe is dipped in blood. His name is the Word of God. And on him, the the armies of heaven are following him. And on his thigh, it's written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The commander of the Lord's army. What is the implication of this? He's with you. He's in your heart. So when Paul says that you are more than an overcomer, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's because we have the one who has conquered it all right inside of us. Right? When Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's where worry flees when we know who's in us, when we have a relationship with that person. There is no room for fear. 
Let's remember that. So no matter what you're going through, whatever fire you're going through, whatever city, figurative city, whatever high-walled fortification thing that you have to, to break down is in your path, remember the God who's with you is able. And not only able, but that he will do it for you. And if you take him at his word, this large gulf between theory and practice is unbelief. And if we take him at his word, that's where miracles happen, in that space between, where we start to take God at his word. So with that, I want to close. Let's just pray and commit this into the Lord's hands. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active, God. I thank you, Lord, that you have spoken through us, through your son, throughout eternity. Every page of this word, oh God, is filled with you, God. I pray that you would reveal it more and more to us, oh Father God. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.